the reading this morning is from uh, the book of Jonah, um, chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Um, it's page 928 on uh, in the... Standard Church Bibles, uh, if you have a large print version like I do, it's on page 1404. Jonah chapter 1. Headed, Jonah flees from the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots and find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us. Who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they said, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord. They offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to him. Thanks, John. Well, morning, everyone. Question for you as we begin our new series in Jonah. Here's your question this morning. How big is your view of God? How big? See, I think many of us go through life with a, a pretty big, overinflated view of self. We think we're pretty good. We think we're all right. But we actually go through life with a pretty small limited view of God and all that he's done for us in Christ. wonder how many people here are familiar with this little classic toy, a dinky toy. I reckon the older generation know all about the dinky toy. For the younger generation, who sadly may become too late 
to enjoy all that it offers. The dinky toy is basically a, a perfectly formed miniature replica of the real thing. So if you want to know what a VW Beetle is, get your hands on a little dinky toy because all the detail of the real thing you see in this little version. And if you got one of these in your stocking at Christmas as a lad, you're buzzing, right? But it's not long till the novelty wears off and you realise actually what you've got in your hand because at the end of the day, all you've got is a small imitation of the real thing. And you see, many of us go through life, I think, with that dinky toy view of God. Maybe it's a nicely formed view. Maybe doctrinally we're quite, quite sound and we know what to say and we can articulate the things of God. But we've actually got a pretty small and limited view of God, ultimately. You see, Jonah, as we'll see as we work our way through these four chapters over the next four weeks, has a dinky toy view of God. He knows what to say about God in his head, but he hasn't been captured. He hasn't been captivated by the grace of God in his heart. And you see, as we'll go on to see, a small view of God ultimately equals a reluctant servant of God. So why don't we pray together as we start this series in Jonah that God would enlarge our view of himself in order that we would be less reluctant and more gladly respond to his call on our lives. So let's pray, shall we, that that would be a reality for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that as we read this short book, we see God in action. We see you at work in this world, in in time and in history, and in the lives of the people that you've made. I pray Lord, that as we come under the sound of your word this morning and over the next few weeks, would you please enlarge our view of yourself. Help us to see your greatness and your grandeur and your goodness. Lord, help us to be less reluctant like Jonah, but help us to gladly and joyfully respond to your call upon our lives. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I don't know what comes into your head when you think about the story of Jonah. It's, uh, for many of us, it might be quite a familiar story. For some of us, completely unfamiliar. But I reckon the majority of you in here, when you think of the story of Jonah, will have something like that. Here's Jonah, and he's, he's a brave man in our minds. Here's a guy that survived the raging waters, and then he's swallowed by this great fish, and he, and he sits it out for three days and three nights before being spat out on dry land and bravely walking all the way to this great pagan city of Nineveh and preaching the gospel. And of course, there's some truth in that. But the danger is, if that's our defining memory of the book of Jonah... What we do is we turn Jonah out to be the hero of this story. We centre our time upon Jonah and we make it all about Jonah and what he's done and his activity. But of course, the book of Jonah isn't ultimately about Jonah. And it's not about a great fish either. The book of Jonah is a book about God. In fact, the most notable contributions of Jonah in this chapter, in verse 3 he runs away, and in verse 5 he falls asleep. That's what Jonah brings to the party. But God, you see, is the primary actor. He is the great initiator, and he is the hero of this story. As we read the book of Jonah, so we understand what God is like. 
And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning as we come to this chapter is, what does it teach me about God and his gracious dealings with the people of this world? And you see, I think there's three things in view. Firstly, we're confronted with a speaking God. Have a look down again at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. It's a pretty standard introduction for a prophet. If you have a look on the screen there, there's a few other examples. The word of the Lord came to dot, dot, dot. It's how all the major prophets are introduced. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and a number of minor prophets in the same way. God appoints people to take his message to the world to be his mouthpiece. The word of the Lord came to dot, dot, dot. But you see, we can get so familiar with an introduction like that that we see in verse 1 that we just glaze over it and it ceases to amaze us. But look again at verse 1. Look what it teaches us about God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. We are presented with a God who speaks to the people of this world. The great creator of all things is in the business of revealing himself to his people. He's not an unknown entity that hides himself away. He's a God who personally and lovingly makes himself known to the people of this world. And here you see God, the loving, personal God, has something very important to say to this great city of Nineveh. And the man chosen for the job? Jonah, son of of Amittai. And have a look at the message. This is the message that he is called to bring to Nineveh in verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. God says, go. And Jonah says, no, in verse 3. Look at his response. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. He fled from the Lord. This is how it's pictured in the Jesus storybook Bible. This is one of Mir's favorite stories at the minute. There's Jonah at the port of Joppa. You might be able to see the signpost there. Nineveh that way and not Nineveh that way. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, I'm going to not Nineveh. This is what it looks like on a map. Where those arrows start, that's, that's Israel. It's where Jonah was prophesying in the 8th century BC. And where he's meant to go to is, is he should be heading about northeastish. This this city of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq, about 550 miles away. But instead, he heads to the coast to this port of Joppa, and instead he embarks on a 2,500-mile journey to Tarshish, which is in modern-day Spain. God says, go northeast, and Jonah heads west, completely in the other direction. You see, Jonah is a man on the run. He is running from the word of the Lord. And the question we must ask ourselves is, why? Why is this prophet on the run? And you see, the easiest conclusion to jump to, I think, would be he's scared. 
He's scared to go to Nineveh because if you understand what Nineveh is, it's one of the leading cities in this superpower that is Assyria. It is a brutal, cruel regime. It rules by utter fear. It was an empire that dominated about a quarter of the globe. Here's a little picture there, look, of the Ninevites and the Assyrians leading captive by lip rings and blinding people with spears in their eyes. It was a brutal and cruel regime. A city that wasn't only great in size, as you read in verse 2, but great in wickedness. I think the most obvious parallel today would be to say, head to an Islamic State stronghold in Syria, and out in the open, and preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus publicly. So I reckon that would be enough to make most of us run the other way in fear and dread, wouldn't it? But you see, as we read on in the story... What we actually come to see is Jonah didn't run because he was scared. He actually ran because he lacked compassion. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 2. We'll obviously deal with this in more depth when we get to chapter 4. But here's Jonah in chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah knew what God would be like. He knew that God is a God of grace and compassion. And if the message went to Nineveh and they relented and they repented, then God would not bring the judgment he'd threatened. But sadly, Jonah doesn't share God's compassion. He doesn't want to see this pagan, God-hating city converted. And so he runs. And he runs in the other direction. And I wonder as you have a look at verse 3 there before you. And you watch this reluctant, disobedient prophet in action. I wonder, can you see yourselves in Jonah? Running perhaps from the word of the Lord? If you're a Christian here this morning, I wonder if that's you. Maybe deliberately rejecting and running from the word of the Lord. Are you in danger of running into sexual immorality rather than fleeing from it when the Lord says clearly, flee from it? Are you in danger of running from the word of the Lord? Maybe it's more subtle. Think about the call last week, the last of it in our one anothering series, to encourage one another and build one another up. That's the instruction of the Lord. I wonder at times whether we deliberately do the opposite and actually say things that tear people down and knock them down because it makes us look better. Or maybe we're more like Jonah was here and we are running from our responsibilities in evangelism. God gave him a message to share to the nations. And he's given us a message to bring to the people of this world. I wonder whether we're in danger of running from our responsibilities. Maybe it's less deliberate. Maybe it's more subtle. Maybe you've not heard the clear word of the Lord from the Bible and you've turned and rejected and gone the other way. Maybe you're just not coming to God's word. Maybe you're pushing the voice of God out to the fringes of life and you're just not taking God's word seriously because, you know what, you'd rather run life your own way and you know that at points God's word will challenge you and convict you and so you just squeeze the word of God out to the margins of life. 
If that's you, you're still running from the word of the Lord. And I wonder if you're not yet a Christian here this morning. Have you heard the word of the Lord calling you to come back to Christ? As the Lord Jesus does again and again throughout the Gospels, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, joy, life, hope, security. But you refuse to come. And instead, you turn and run in the opposite direction. You see, whether you're a Christian here this morning or not yet a Christian, if you are on the run from the Lord, the word of the Lord in any shape or form, you are on the run because your view of God is too small. If you understood the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God, if you understand who God is as portrayed in the scriptures, he's not a God to run from, but he's a God to run to. God is a speaking God. And secondly, God is a sovereign God. Have a look down again at verse 3. We'll come to verse 4 in a moment. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. (laughs) Does Jonah really think he can flee from the Lord? Does he really think he can go somewhere where God is not? I don't think so. If you have a look at the psalm on the screen here, Psalm 139, it's a psalm that Jonah would have been familiar with. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. I mean, this is Saturday school stuff for Jonah. This is basics. He knows this. And have a look at down at verse 9 as well. Later when he's in conversation with the sailors, this is what he says. He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah acknowledges God as the creator of all things, the seas and the dry land. He made the, not, he made the lots. Jonah knows that there's nowhere ultimately he can go and flee from the presence of God. He hasn't got a territorial view of God like some of these other nations with their false gods, that God is limited to certain places and certain times. His view of God is orthodox, right? It's there in verse 9. He could recite the creed with the best of us. I believe in God, Father Almighty, creator of heavens and earth. He knows it. But you see, what he knows in his head, he's not believing fully in his heart. He's got a dinky toy view of God. He can articulate the right things, but he's not been captivated by grace. And so he runs. But verse 4, look, confirms what we already know about God. You cannot outrun a sovereign God who controls creation. Have a look at verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind. This is the Lord's doing. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. God's power is released, 
and God's prophet is stopped in his tracks. And did you notice verse 5? You see, our disobedience and reluctance isn't just an offense against God Almighty. It has huge implications for those around us because it's the sailors that bear the brunt of Jonah's reluctance, right? As they throw their livelihood overboard. And while all this is going on, look what Jonah's up to, the last part of verse 5. I mean, this is remarkable, isn't it? All this chaos above deck. Look at Jonah, verse 5. Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. No doubt a physical sleep, yeah? But certainly a symbol of his spiritual state. You see, this is his moment. This is God's prophet's moment. This is his moment to shine. This is his moment to show these pagan sailors that there really is a God over all the world. To cry out to a sovereign God and to watch this sovereign God in action. But instead, where is Jonah? He's asleep to the opportunity that is before him. You see, it's such a sad scene, isn't it, really? But I think actually a fairly prophetic one of the church today. Because here, above deck, you've got these pagan sailors. And what are they doing? They're firstly turning to false gods, shouting out to false gods who can never save them. It's futile. And then they try to save themselves. They yock all their stuff overboard to lighten the ship. It's just as futile, right? Where below deck, there is a man of God who knows the truth, but he's asleep. I wonder, are we awake or are we asleep to the opportunities before us in evangelism? Because I think actually we're probably more like Jonah than we care to imagine. Even in verse 6, look, when the sailors wake him up there in verse 6, still Jonah does nothing. Still he does not cry to God. And so the sailors cast lots in verse 7. And guess what? The lot falls on Jonah. You see, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, God's rule over all things, God doesn't just keep the planet spinning. He's not just in charge of the mighty oceans. God's sovereign rule extends to the throw of a dice. And so in verse 8, Jonah is exposed because the lot falls on Jonah. You see, there's a wonderful irony here, isn't there? Because Jonah is a prophet on the run. Why? Because he lacks compassion. He doesn't want to preach the gospel to other nations. But God, in his grace, pursues this reluctant prophet. First, he brings him to a halt with a mighty storm, and then he exposes him before the sailors with the roll of a dice. And Jonah is forced to testify, as he does in verse 9, that God is the God who created all things the seas, and the dry land. (laughs) Isn't it wonderfully comforting, the sovereignty of God? However fierce the opposition, however reluctant the servants of God might be, God will pursue his reluctant servants, and he will turn them around, and he will still use them despite their weakness and their frailty and all their reluctance, and he will cause us to testify. The gospel will go out, and people will meet the living God. A God who speaks and a God who is sovereign over all things. 
And thirdly, we meet a saving God in verse 11 to 17. Have a look down at verse 11. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault this great storm has come upon you. After one more attempt of trying to save themselves in verse 13, eventually they do cry out to the Lord in verse 14. And then they act, look, in verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Can you imagine that scene if you're one of the sailors? Wild, out of control sea. They can do absolutely nothing. In goes Jonah. He knows it's his fault. And vroom, a blanket. Absolute quiet. The anger of God is pacified and the sailors are saved. I don't know whether as you listen to this, the story of Jonah chapter 1 being read, can you hear the echoes of another story maybe somewhere in the New Testament? Can you hear the parallels? Another story that rings true like this? Do you know where we're going? Mark chapter 4, right? The calming of the storm. A mighty storm, some petrified sailors, a man who is asleep, an intervention by God, a complete calm, and a response of reverent fear like we see there in verse 16. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Have a look at Mark chapter 4 up here on the screen. Let me read this little section to you and note the parallels. Hear the echoes, because we're meant to hear the echoes as we come to Christ in the New Testament, a furious squall came up. Waves broke over the boats so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And the response again at the end, they were terrified and asked each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? What's the point as we come to Mark chapter 4? Jesus is God. It is Jesus who speaks Quiet, be still. And in his sovereignty, a storm is stilled just like that. And it's Jesus who saves, right? It's God who saves. It's Jesus who saves. And not so much from the physical storm as we see here in Jonah or Mark chapter 4, but from the storm of God's judgment against sin when the Lord Jesus went to the cross and bore our sin. He bore our sin in our place. And God's anger was pacified so that we might be saved. And when you get that, when God begins to enlarge our view of himself, when we begin to see just how powerful and wonderfully personal and sovereign and saving our God is, why do we run? 
Christian or not yet a Christian, why run from the Lord? Because he is for us. He's not a God to run away from. He is a God to run to into his perfectly loving and secure and warm embrace. And so I finish with the question that I started with that's going to come up on the screen. I want to give you a minute to contemplate it in your own heart. In light of what you've read and heard about God in Jonah chapter 1, how big now is your view of God and all that he has done for us in Christ? Take a minute to ask yourself that question. Let's close by saying the grace together. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.